I'm Nim, and this is A Spoonful of Medicine, topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. This is part two of our series about prematurity. In this episode, we're tackling necrotizing enterocolitis. It's a much feared complication in the NICU. Neck is something that you may come across indeed in the NICU, perhaps on a paediatric surgery term, or you may be caring for a child who has a history of neck but now has graduated out of the NICU and is in the clinics. No matter where you are, neck is something that you need to be aware of and it is a big issue in neonates and babies. So let's check it out. Let's start off with a case study. Meet baby Nico. He was born at 27 weeks gestational age by a caesarean section due to preterm premature rupture of membranes and concerns about placental abruption. His birth weight was 1,400 grams. The pregnancy itself was complicated by a maternal history of immune thrombocytopenia as well as gestational diabetes. Mum received adequate antibiotic cover and a complete antenatal course of steroids before his delivery. Nico's APGAR scores were 5 and 9 at 1 and 5 minutes, respectively. At delivery, he had respiratory distress, but didn't require immediate intubation. He was transferred to the NICU and he received a dose of surfactant and was intubated by your fellow. Over the course of the next two weeks, he slowly weaned off his respiratory support requirements. He was changed over to high-flow oxygen. Enterotrophic feeds of breast milk were started by day four of life, and these were slowly upgraded. He reached full enteral feeding on breast milk as well as human milk fortifier by his second week. On day 16 of life, the nurses call you because they are concerned about Nico. They notice that his abdomen seems far more distended than usual, and he seems to be quite uncomfortable. On physical examination, you note that his abdomen is indeed quite distended, as well as looks a little bit shiny. He's been having some slightly green aspirates up his nasogastric tube. You have a listen to his bowel sounds, and you really struggle to hear any. You order an x-ray of his abdomen. That shows diffuse bowel dilatation, and you can appreciate intramural gas and there is some pneumatosis within the portal circulation. Your consultant advises you to make Nico kneel by mouth, cover him with triple antibiotic therapy and contact the surgeons. We're concerned that poor little Nico has neck. Okay, let's backtrack a little bit. Let's start with talking about what is necrotizing enterocolitis. Neck is an ischemic and inflammatory necrosis of the bowel, primarily affecting premature neonates after the initiation of enteral feeding. Neck develops in 4 to 10% of infants weighing less than 1,500 grams, with the highest incidence in the most premature infants. About 10% of neck cases, however, can occur in term infants, many of whom have pre-existing medical conditions. Overall, the incidence of neck is about one in every thousand births. The mortality can be as high as 20 to 30%. Let's have a chat about the pathophysiology of necrotizing enterocolitis. 
The theory is multifactorial in that it's been suggested there are several risk factors, including prematurity, formula feeds, ischemia, and an altered intestinal microbiome that interact to initiate mucosal damage by a final common pathway that involves an exaggerated inflammation or host immune response that has cytokines, chemokines, and ultimately resulting in a whole lot of damage. There may be some sort of initiating factor, such as GIT ischemia from, say, an anoxic insult, sepsis, or congenital cardiac disease. This ischemic result causes damage to the premature intestinal membrane, and this increases its permeability. Once we start enteral feeds, the substrate of those enteral feeds can act as something that helps proliferate luminal bacteria. These bacteria can then translocate. All of this ultimately leads to further and further inflammation, more cytokines and intestinal ischemia. The bacteria themselves can produce hydrogen gas, and this is how we see intramural gas as well as portal venous gas. Neck can involve single or multiple segments of the bowel, and it most commonly affects the terminal ileum as well as colon. Neck can also result in its worst form in perforation of the bowel, and then you get pneumoperitoneum, and that is bad news. Now, let's check out the risk factors for neck. There is an inverse relationship between gestational age, birth weight, and risk of developing neck. Or in other words, the younger and lighter you are, the higher the risk of getting neck. Although most preterm infants develop neck at a postmenstrual age or a corrected gestational age of 30 to 32 weeks, various factors resulting from premature birth place them at a higher risk for neck. These may involve an immature mucosal barrier, mucosal enzymes that aren't quite as efficient, as well as various GI hormones, as well as an immature bowel motility and function. Additionally, an inability to effectively regulate intestinal microcirculation and differences in bacterial colonisation heavily impact on the risk of getting neck. The next big risk factor is enteral feeding or feeding via the GI tract. Neck is rare in unfed infants and 90 to 95% of infants with neck have received at least one enteral feed. Enteral feeding provides a necessary substrate for the proliferation of enteric pathogens. Bugs love the sugar. Additionally, hyperosmolar formulas as well as medications may alter the mucosal permeability and cause mucosal damage and that also can lead to the setup for neck. Breast milk feeds significantly lower the risk of neck. Mammalian breast milk is a biologic fluid and has been highly conserved for millions of years to provide survival advantage to newborn babies. It contains heaps of good stuff like immune cells, growth factors, anti-inflammatory factors like interleukins and secretory IgA and lactoferrin. Breast milk also contains HMOs or human milk oligosaccharides that have no nutritive value for the infant but can be consumed by bacteria and can help protect and develop the neonatal GI tract. So enteral feeding, although a risk factor for neck, breast milk is protective. The next risk factor for neck is abnormal intestinal microbiome. 
the microbiological colonization of the intestine starts in utero and is really dependent on the mode of delivery, the level of maturity of the infant and the exposure to antibiotics. During the first week of life in healthy term infants, the intestinal microbiome changes to a predominance of organisms such as bifidobacterium as well as lactobacilli. They're the good guys. These are capable of consuming those human milk oligosaccharides. Ultimately, they help develop the GI tract and really make it strong. Exposure to prolonged courses of antibiotics, which may be seen quite often in premature babies, promotes inflammation because it can lead to the colonisation of gram-negative bacteria within the GI tract. This leads to intestinal dysbiosis or an imbalance between good guys and bad guys. And so too much of a bad guy means an increased likelihood of neck. To help with improving the gut microbiome, Premature infants are given probiotics. These include things like the bifidobacterium and lactobacillus, and you may have heard of it in the form of infloran. Next risk factor is intestinal ischemia. During periods of hypoxia, blood flow is diverted away from the splanchnic circulation. That is part of a diving reflex. This is usually followed by reperfusion, which may lead to oxidant damage and bowel injury. Infants who subsequently develop neck have been shown to have higher flow resistance in their mesenteric arteries. Infants with symptomatic patent ductus arteriosus or PDAs are also at a higher risk for neck, possibly due to intestinal ischemia associated with the fluid and blood shifts. So to summarise, the main risk factors for neck are prematurity, introduction of enteral feeding with breastfeeding and breast milk being protective, gut microbiome dysbiosis, as well as intestinal ischemia, maternal drug use and red cell transfusions or polycythemia. Now that we know the risk factors for neck in which babies are more likely to get it, let's have a look at how they may present. The timing of neck presentation varies with gestational age. Term infants tend to present early within the first week of life. However, they are the minority of cases of neck. The premature babies who develop neck tend to develop it in those first 14 days of life with the peak presentation at around that 29 to 30 weeks corrected gestational age. Neck can present in various ways, making the diagnosis a really difficult one. The early clinical presentation may include feed intolerance, so increased aspirates or not being able to take the same volumes of foods, increased gastric residuals, as well as blood in the stool. Specific abdominal signs include abdominal distension, tenderness, abdominal skin discoloration and bilious drainage from the nasogastric tube. Systemic symptoms are often nonspecific and really do overlap with those of neonatal sepsis. These include increased apnea and bradycardic episodes, temperature instability, hypotension and circulatory shock. The clinical course of neck is highly variable. Although about 30% may have a mild presentation that responds to medical treatment, about 5 to 7% may have a fulminant course with rapid progression to neck totalis, 
septic shock, severe metabolic acidosis, and death. So seeing that neck can vary from a mild to extensively severe condition, in the 1970s, a surgeon developed a way to characterise the disease based on its clinical severity, and this helps us dictate what management is required. The term for this criteria is Bell's criteria. This staging criteria requires clinical signs as well as radiographic presentation, and it's broken down into three main stages. Stage one is suspected neck, stage two is proven neck, and stage three is advanced neck. Have a look at our Instagram page for a more detailed breakdown of that criteria. Okay, so you have a baby like Nico that you're concerned could have neck. So what investigations do you order? We can separate them into lab studies, imaging, and other. Just to start off with blood tests, we get a full blood count with a differential. And often here we see white cell rides as well as neutrophilia. Thrombocytopenia can often be seen as well. We do CRPs and these can correlate with the inflammatory response. Next, we need blood cultures because babies with neck can get sepsis and also the presentation of neck overlaps greatly with neonatal sepsis. And that is a diagnosis we do not want to miss. We want an electrolyte panel, which may show hyponatremia and hyperkalemia and potential AKI as well. We get a blood gas and it will often show a metabolic or combined acidosis with alactatemia. Next come our imaging studies and the one that we go to in the first instance is an abdominal x-ray. Signs can range from being quite nonspecific to extensive. Things that make you suspect for neck include an abdominal gas pattern, ileus with dilated or thickened bowel loops. Changes that make you say, this is neck, include pneumatosis intestinalis or air within that bowel wall, portal venous gas. In extreme cases, if you have an intestinal perforation, you can also see a pneumoperitoneum. So to summarise, if you have a baby that you are concerned about neck, you get bloods, including a full blood count, gas, blood cultures, CRP and electrolytes, and you order an abdominal x-ray. Now that we know what neck is, what the risk factors are and how it all presents and what investigations you need, how do we manage a baby that has neck? The goal is to provide bowel rest and to prevent progression of the disease. The management itself is separated into medical management and surgical management. In terms of medical management, we make the baby kneel by mouth to allow the GI to rest for up to 7 to 14 days. Total parenteral nutrition or TPN is used to provide the basic nutritional needs for the baby during that time. You also want to decompress the stomach with an OGT or a nasogastric tube. You want to closely monitor the baby, their vital signs and as well as their abdominal signs. You check all their gastric aspirates as well as their stools for blood. You need to provide good respiratory support. This may mean that a previously ventilating baby may need to be re-intubated. 
We also need to monitor the labs to make sure that full blood counts as well as electrolytes are stable and improving. Antibiotics are also commenced and babies are treated with parenteral or IV antibiotics for 10 to 14 days. Commonly used antibiotic regimes include ampicillin, vancomycin, gentamicin and metronidazole. However, have a look at your local guidelines for which antibiotics and in which combination are used. And finally, we want an early surgical consultation because if the neck is rapidly evolving or if medical management is unsuccessful, this baby may need surgery. In terms of surgical management, the goal really is to prevent enteric spillage and resect the necrotic intestine while preserving as much viable bowel as possible. When looking after patients, we often want to prevent things from happening rather than treating once they have occurred. So the same goes for neck. The way that we prevent neck includes the use of breast milk, use of standard feeding regime, and a cautious approach to feeding in high-risk infants is often really, really needed. We use probiotics. They are a live, non-pathogenic microbial preparation that helps colonise the baby's intestine with those good guy bacterias. Here, we like to use a mix of bifidobacterium as well as lactobacillus, and that is called Infloran. To close off this episode, we'll quickly cover the complications and prognosis of those with neck. The biggest complication of neck is the recurrence of it, which may occur in up to 10% of babies. Babies with the history of neck can also get colonic strictures. Babies who've had extensive bowel resection can get short bowel syndrome. And those same babies are often dependent on total parenteral nutrition. And this can lead to associated liver disease and line-related infections. The overall prognosis for babies with necrotizing enterocolitis depends on its severity. Nonetheless, the overall risk of mortality can be as high as 20 to 30%. Infants with surgical neck or the worst types of neck can also have significant growth and neurodevelopmental impairment. However, that said, there are a significant proportion of babies who get neck are treated efficiently and effectively and recover well with no long-term comorbidity. And with that, it's time for a recap. Necrotizing enterocolitis or neck is an ischemic and inflammatory necrosis of the bowel primarily affecting premature infants after the initiation of enteral feeds. It has a multifactorial etiology and pathogenesis that ultimately results in bowel damage, increased permeability and translocation of bacteria resulting in widespread inflammation. Risk factors for neck include prematurity, initiation of enteral feeds, abnormal intestinal microbiome, intestinal ischemia, as well as maternal drug use, red cell transfusions and polycythemia, and use of H2 receptor antagonists. The clinical presentation of neck can vary greatly. The characteristic triad of feed intolerance, abdominal distension, and grossly body stools is one that is quoted frequently in the textbooks. The severity of neck is graded using the modified Bell staging criteria. 
The diagnosis of neck includes blood tests like a full blood count, DRP, gas, blood cultures, as well as electrolyte panels. You want to get an abdominal x-ray, quick smart. The management of neck includes medical management, including kneel by mouth, gastric decompression and cover with antibiotic therapy. Surgical management may be required in severe cases. We prevent neck by using human milk, standardised feeding regimes and probiotics. The complications of neck include recurrence of it, colonic strictures, short bowel syndrome and issues with liver disease due to parenteral nutrition. Finally, the prognosis of neck is that most babies do survive. However, it does carry a significant mortality risk and those who do survive can have ongoing bowel issues. And that's been this week's episode of A Spoonful of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend. For the visual learners of us out there, head over to our Instagram page at spoonful.of.medicine for a quick summary of today's episode, along with some other great educational content. If you'd like to get in touch, have a suggestion for a future episode, or have heard something that you think needs a correction, please email us on spoonfulofmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. It's been a pleasure topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. I can't wait for you to join us on our next episode. But until then, bye.